0: Welcome to the Gateways Beyond International Podcast, featuring inspirational teaching from our ministry bases in the nations. For more information, please visit us online at gatewaysbeyond.org. I want to share with us tonight, setting the stage this evening, for a little bit of the bigger picture concerning God's heart for Israel, by looking at the broader theme of God's glory and how it's revealed through His interaction, through His dealings, through His plan, through salvation history, and through His word with a people. When we talk about Israel and the theme of this weekend is why stand with Israel, we're talking about both a people and a place. We're talking about land when it refers to Israel in the scriptures and a people that were called and set apart by God. And I want to look at a little bit different perspective tonight. We're We're not going to be looking through the lens of romanticism. We're not going to be looking through emotionalism. You know, this subject stirs up so much different things and perspectives and you have all different kinds of groups we want to be a people of the voice of God and of the word of God we want to be a people who know his word and we see his plan and you know he had a plan from the beginning and he is working it faithfully throughout history he had a plan and he's working that plan well it's written out and it's mapped out for us here The broad theme of all of the scriptures from beginning to end is the glory of God to be seen upon the earth. It's to be manifested. When we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about the manifestation of who he is. We're talking about the shining forth of his face as we were singing and and pleading with the Lord. It's the revealing of his character, of his nature, and his ways. And God wants his glory to be seen in the earth. He wants to reveal his glory. He's not stingy with his presence, with his personality, with his ways, with his character, with his nature, but he longs to reveal it. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see the broad plan of how you have designed a beautiful, intricate plan from the beginning of history to this day until the end of days, to reveal your glory in the earth. You see, the way that he decided to work this plan was to partner together with fallen humanity, to partner together with us in our weakness, and in the midst of that partnering together, to show his glory, to show his strength, to show his majesty and his splendor. And so he chose us. But before that, He chose a man and he chose his family. And he said, I want you to be a sign and a wonder in the earth. I want you to be a faith family that I'll show my glory through. But Israel, we're not talking about lobbying a political position. We're not talking about uh, pushing forward nationalism of a particular people. What we're talking about is God's covenant faithfulness about releasing God's divine order. We didn't choose it, but we can read about it here. We can read about that, the glory and the beauty of his design in his his righteous order and how he set it up in the earth. It's about honor, it's about covenant, and it's about his eternal word, his faithful promises. But the way that God chose to do it is not the way that I would, but his ways are higher. Because... He chose the foolish, and he chose the weak. And I come sharing as a Messianic Jewish believer, from a, come from a family of rabbis, come from a family uh, of uh, having a history in Judaism, and a part of that faith family. But I'm not presenting that as a strength, but rather I come before you in weakness. And the only thing to present tonight is the strength and the power of the word of God. You see, he chooses the weak. He chooses the vulnerable. He chooses the lesser vessel to show his glory. Let's turn in our Bibles. We'll jump right into 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Hallelujah. We love your word. 1 Corinthians 1. Verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty and not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world, the things which are despised, God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. And here's the point verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him, you are in Messiah Yeshua, Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it's written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. That's his plan. That's his design. That's how he chooses. He said, I want to partner together. He took a risk in involving you and involving me in choosing a man who responded in faith to him. But he said, in weakness, as we partner together, I'll show myself strong that all might see my glory. So God, has, throughout history, has set up impossible situations. He allowed the apostle to come into a situation in history so that his glory might be seen and his glory might be known. Foolish things. Foolish things to our natural way of thinking, but according to the mind of God, he'll get the glory at the end of the day. According to the majesty of his design and the purpose that he's been at from the beginning of history till now until the end of days, he will get all the glory. You see, God's glory is the goal. His glory is the big picture. His glory being seen is what we are after. When we're singing, we want to see your face. We want to know your face. We, we want to know who you are. We want transformation in the Northwest. When we're crying out for all these things, what the answer to that is the glory of God. The answer to the longing of our hearts is his glory to be manifest, that it's not hidden back, or it's not held back in measure, but it's fully revealed so that when he comes, he imprints his life, all that he is into every situation, restoring what's broken, filling what's missing. with. The, all of his fullness, with all of his goodness. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Lord. Let's turn to Judges chapter 6, and we're going to look at a couple examples quickly and go through a few highlights of how he chooses the least. We know this story very well. It's the story of Gideon or Gideon in English. Judges 6, verse 11. If you will, as we read it together, see the humor. In the text, I don't know about you reading the Bible regularly from a young child up to now. I need to see the humor in the Bible just sometimes to keep my interest piqued. And the Holy Spirit is so faithful in it to, to show the humor of God as he deals with men like me and other weak ones and other weak vessels. And so here we are in Judges 6 verse 11. And the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, "O oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us, And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt, But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites?" So here we are in this situation. It's a time of war. Gideon is hiding. He's threshing wheat in a wine press. If you've been and visited the Middle East, if you've been into these lands where there are wine presses, and where even in the, in the more ancient world, they thresh wheat still to this day, you thresh wheat on a hill in an exposed place where the wind blows through so the chaff can be blown away. A wine press is usually a cutout in a rock. It's a, it's a place that's cut down, and so he was hiding down, doing his job in obscurity, hiding away in timidity and in fear from the enemy, and the Lord speaks to him. Now, first First of all, think about it like this. Every other man, when you read about when the angel of the Lord appears to them, their response is falling on the ground, trembling. Abraham ran and killed the fatted calf and prepared a meal for the angel of the Lord. Everyone else has this, this um, response of either fear or utmost honor. Gideon, in the place of his fear of the enemy, when the Lord comes and his rise up mighty man of valor, he questions the Lord. We laugh until we realize that that's you. And that's me. We're saying, oh Lord, we want to see your face. And when he speaks to us, is that really you, God? I need another confirmation on that. I need to hear another word. I'm going to go to another church and see what the prophet is saying. What the guest speaker wants to tell me. And here Gideon, he's hiding out and the angel of the Lord... The pre-incarnate Messiah reveals himself to him. The captain of the hosts of the armies of heaven reveals himself. And where better men than Gideon fell on the ground as if dead, trembling in fear, he questions and he begins to complain and he begins to whine to the Lord. Oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles? Wow, he's got some guts. Or he's just ignorant. Ignorant. Where are all his miracles? Where, where, which our fathers told us about saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours. And you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites, have I not sent you? The Lord didn't even hear his complaining. He didn't even hear his timidity. He didn't hear any of that. But he was speaking beyond that to what he saw as a possibility in the midst of his weakness. Because... So he said, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least of my father's house. And the Lord said, surely I will be with you. When the Lord is with us, he takes the weakest, the smallest of the clans. You see, in Israel, we know that there were 12 tribes. And we know that within those tribes, that there were clans. And then within those clans, there were families. And then he's saying, out of all the tribes, we're the smallest and the weakest. of all the clans, and then of all the families, and then me at the end, I'm the one that's hiding in the wine press. Why don't you choose someone else? And the Lord says, surely I will be with you and together we will defeat the enemy. In his brilliance, he chooses the weakest. He chooses the least. He chooses us in our fear and our timidity. He chooses us in our brokenness. And he says, when I'm with you, we're going to conquer the enemy. Then he said to them, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. And then we know how this goes on and Gideon, he puts out the fleece and we use it as spiritual language today. When we hear a word from the Lord that we don't really like, we say we need to put a fleece out or I need another confirmation. Now I have a thing about this because when, uh, you know, when we're first growing to understand the voice of the Lord, it's okay. It's how we learn to confirm the word of the Lord, the voice of God in our life. But there's something more than always seeking confirmations. What about the sheep that know his voice? What about knowing the Sound of the master's voice that when he speaks, we obey. When he speaks, we're on our way. When he speaks, we're moving forward in response to the word of the Lord. And so let's push beyond Gideon's fleece. Let's push beyond multiple confirmations and come back to the simplicity of hearing and obeying. In our weakness, to say, I am weak, but here I am. And I know that when you're with me, we can win together. And so he, throughout the story, the rest of the chapter 6, he's talking about the fleeces. And God is, is merciful and shows his power uh, and confirms by a number of different signs to Gideon. Then chapter 7. At this point, he's gathered the armies of Israel. And, the, and Chapter 7, verse 2. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Unfortunately, that's been the story of our people time and time again throughout history. That God is great in his mercy. Now therefore, proclaim the hear- in the hearing of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And so we go from 22,000 down to 10,000. But the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. As we read, he he goes and proves and he he takes down to a smaller number. They go from 22,000 to 10,000 and they end up with 300 men in verse six. And the number of those who lapped putting their hand to their mouth was 300 men, but all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who laughed, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. And so the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent. And here God whittled down the numbers of the armies because he wanted to t- take the weakest, he wanted to take the small number to show his power and to show his glory. Now, without reading, let me just tell you the rest of the story. So the captain, the host, he speaks to Gideon. He says, this is the plan. Military strategy. I want you to take some clay jars, put some coals in it, fire, and I want to take some ram's horns and go and stand on the mountains around the enemy's camp. At a certain time, I want everybody to shout and to blow the ram's horn, break open the clay jars, and then you're going to win the battle. Now, I'm not a brilliant military strategist, but that's not the first idea that I would come up with. Oh, yeah, horns and clay jars. That's what I forgot. But God takes the foolish things to show his power. He takes the foolish things. Simple acts of obedience. To show his glory. Because he's after. He said I don't want you to do, do it. And win the victory. And then say that it was by your own hand. And in your own strength. But I want you to see that I am at work. In your midst. And we know that when it happened. With the shout that was raised up. Was the sword of the Lord. And the sword of Gideon. And when they blew those trumpets. And they broke open those clay jars. And the lights shone on the hillside that the confusion went into the enemy's camp and they turned one upon another and then the Israelites had to just go those 300 men and clean up and take the reward of the battle. God chooses the weak. He chooses the least. He chooses the smaller numbers. It's not how we think, but that's how God thinks. In in, uh, Micah chapter 5, it talks about God's choosing of the town where the Messiah was to be born. Micah 5, verse 2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me one to be the ruler. Of Israel, he chose the smallest of the clans of Judah for the birthing of the Messiah. This was the long-awaited hope of the people of Israel. Every young woman of Israel had remembered and was told that the promise to Eve that one day a son would be born, one day the seed would come from a woman and would crush the serpent's head. There was a a, a hope and a desire within within every Israelite woman that, that the Messiah would be born from her. And there you would think, would it be in Jerusalem? Would it be in one of the bigger cities? No, he says, I chose the smallest of the villages of Judah. But out of you shall come forth me to be the one who's the ruler over Israel. Think about how Yeshua selected his finest men, how he selected the disciples. He had three years of public ministry and he invested three years of walking and talking and imparting the teaching of the kingdom of God to 12 men, to a unit of 12 men. But he went and he just walked along and he said, oh, there's a fisherman. He'll do. And he called them. He said, come and follow me. He chose men from the Galilee. Now, the Galilee to us today is something that sounds very romantic. It's a place where Jesus walked. We think about the Galilee. Oh, if I go to Israel, I want to go to the Galilee. I want to go to the place where Jesus' footsteps were. I want to go and and see where He did signs and wonders. But at the time of of Jesus, at the time that Yeshua walked there, the Galilee was the backwaters. It was it was the the the, the sticks. It, it, it was the out, outer places. No one wanted to be posted. No Roman soldier. No one with authority. No one. Uh, the the uh, towns there were mixed between Greeks and Jews, and there was a mixture. They're called Hellenistic Jews at that time, and uh, it it was like watered down. And so, and so the idea of being from Galilee was like undesirable. I don't know in this area what those neighborhoods are, but, but that's, that was the idea. And he went and he walked in those places and he said, come and follow me and he chose his finest he chose 12 from that place and he's and he and not only you know did he choose the you you would think he would choose the those that had sat under the rabbis those that had the teaching who had the word of god instilled in them no he said those fishermen brothers they'll do that tax collector i want to work with him and he chose each of the disciples and then he said, I'm going to use them to show them my glory. He knew that even after he died and he, went, he was resurrected and went to heaven, that what he was able to instill in these rough guys, in these simple guys, was enough to change the course of history. And we're here today because of them, the weakest. Because of them, the least. I think of, again, of the humor in it. It's, it's, it's so funny, but... Um, in Mark 14, after Peter denies the Lord, and, uh, and he's there, he's recognized by a servant girl, and the way that, uh, that she recognizes him is by his accent. You remember that? Say, said, oh yeah, you're the, one of those ones who when we were going around with Jesus, and he denied, he said, no, I'm not. He said, no, no, we recognize because of your Galilean accent. We recognize because, you know... I guess it was like a hillbilly kind of thing or, or, you know, he was, they were considered a hick. He had enough of an accent that it stood out in the metropolis of Jerusalem at that time. And, and they said, oh yeah, you were one of those Galileans that was with Jesus. I think about him as fishermen and, you know, we know fishermen today that their kind of language that they use is very, uh, colorful. And, um, you know, if he was denying the Lord, he was probably using some choice words at the time, uh. But uh, the Lord still used him. And he uses me and you. And uh, he wants to show his glory. Acts 4 says that they were uneducated, untrained men. But what set them apart was that they had been with Jesus. They had walked with Jesus and it lingered. And it was their effect on them. And seen through them. And when we think of Israel in light of this, God chooses the least he chooses the weakest he chooses the ones that are most impossible so that at the end of the day he gets all of his glory I'm here as a Jewish believer and not to say oh man you got to pray for Israel and for my people and and it's you know it's not a nationalistic thing but it's it's to come here and to say that God you used our family simply because our father said Yes to the Lord. And he got up from his father's house and went to a land that he didn't know. And the Lord said, that's enough. Faith. I can work with that. I'll create a heritage. And I will use your family to bless every family of the earth. He chooses the least and the weakest. Why did God choose Israel? Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let's turn there. Verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. Now, verse six, we read and it says, The Lord God has chosen you to be a people for himself. And we think, Wow, that's pretty good. I'm chosen. A special treasure above all the people. Wow, a special treasure. That's pretty awesome. But he says, God didn't set his love on you, nor choose you because you're more numbered than any other people, for you were the least of all people. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep The oath which he swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. And redeemed you from the house of bondage. From the house of Pharaoh king of Egypt. Therefore know that the Lord your God. He is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations. With those who love him and keep his commandments. This whole thing about Israel is that he chose a weak people. To display his glory through. He said here's a people. That are going to fail me time and time again. He describes them as uh, stiff necked and hard hearted, and that they turn their hearts in rebellion over and over again. He, he describes through the prophets, he says, I, I am like a husband to you, but you gave yourself to other gods, and you went after other idols. But he chose in his covenant faithfulness to say true with them. He said, it's the world and as the nations see my dealings with Israel, they'll know that I'm a covenant keeping, that I'm a faithful God, that I'm good for my word, that I will never change on my word or on my promises, and that they will know that there's hope for them. And so as we see God's faithfulness to the people of Israel, we know that ultimately he will be faithful to us. Every word that he spoke and everything that he has declared over your life, life because he's faithful to a people who were weak and because he was a faithful to a people who were the least we can stand with confidence to know he'll be faithful to me he's a covenant keeping god even the even the the city of his choosing the place where his throne to rest and the place that he's going to come back to jerusalem it's an impossible scenario we read you can 't go without watching one segment cycle of the news without seeing something about Jerusalem and the war in, over the city of Jerusalem, the contention, the strife, the confusion, all of the things that are going over this one city in the earth, but god said that 's my city that 's where i 'm going to rule that 's where i 'm going to reign and it 's impossible. the greatest minds of the earth, the greatest reconcilers, the elders the the guys who have fixed you know apartheid the guys uh, the guys that have have reconciled national differences. They can't do anything with this, this subject of, of Jerusalem. But God is setting up a scenario to show his glory. God is allowing this the, the situation that, in its weakness and its vulnerability, that he says, in a moment when everything's about to fall apart, when everything looks impossible, he comes and he's going to crack open the sky. And he's going to come and he says, This is the place of my choosing. This is the place where I'm going to set up my throne. This is where I'm going to rule and reign in righteousness over all the nations of the earth. This is my chosen place. God has an eye on geography. God has a concern for people and for land. He knows both you and what his plan is for your life. But he also knows and he determined the boundaries of your dwelling place. He's concerned both about your life and the place that he's planted you and put you in. And he said, I choose Jerusalem. It's an impossible situation. But in the midst of that impossibility, when I come, every nation will see my glory. We can go, we travel into the bush. We travel into remote areas and everyone has heard about Jerusalem. It is, it is in in some ways a world-class city, although it's so small. It's not like New York. It's not like, it's not, it's not like Paris or London. It doesn't have any of that external beauty, but every nation knows about Jerusalem. And in in that city, in that one place, God has set up impossibilities so that he can come and establish righteous rule in order. He chooses the weak. He chooses the least. He chooses the impossibility to reveal his glory. All the nations look and they say, it's a stumbling stone. It's a rock of offense. It's impossible. But God says, it will be called a cup of praise. It will be, It is the place of my choosing. God is committed to the utmost degree, to the farthest that we could possibly imagine to be faithful to his word and to reveal his glory by showing his covenant faithfulness through a people. This should give us great hope in our hearts. As I see from the beginning, as I read your word of how you dealt with Abraham and his descendants, the people of Israel, the Israelites, and you've been so faithful in the midst of their hard-heartedness and their disobedience, I can know with surety that you'll never turn away from me. You'll be faithful to me. And so we look at the example of this priest nation, not because they were so pure, but they were a model of how God deals with mankind, It's not about a people. It's not about a nation. It's about a faithful covenant keeping God. And that's the God that we worship and that's the God that we glorify. And so we understand that there's something about God's faithfulness to this people that if we hold on to that, that we attach our prayers, that we attach our intercession, there's great value because it's playing a part in releasing God's glory ultimately in the whole earth. I think about, two men in the scriptures who had an amazing encounter with God that had a revelation of the glory of the Lord that's probably far beyond any other in the scriptures. One of them is Moses and the other is Paul. Both of these men encountered God in such a life-changing way that we desire. It, it, they set their life on a course. Uh, they were so transformed that we long and we read the accounts earlier. Uh, uh, James was reading to us about, "Oh Lord, I want to see Your glory. I want Your presence to go before me." We long to have that kind of encounter with the Lord. Moses he went up into the fiery uh, cloud on top of Mount Sinai, and he was there face to face with the Lord, and he was there in the presence of the Lord in the glory cloud God revealed himself to Moses and he came down and he came down the mountain he wasn't only carrying two tablets with ten commandments written on but he had been touched by the very finger of God so much so that his physical body was transformed and that the glory of God was radiating upon his life that it says that his face shone. That his face was shining forth. That was a glory encounter. That was an encounter that we long for. In my heart. I, I, I desire. I think about my, my mountain uh, peak times where I have had encounters with the Lord, but still it doesn't compare to Moses. And I think about a guy like Paul. Paul who, who who was so zealous in persecuting the church but that God got a hold of him and Jesus uh, revealed himself to him and he gave his life and he ran with such endurance and he ran with such uh, faithfulness and he, uh, he endured so much hardship in his life but he kept plowing before because he had Jesus in his eyes. He had Jesus in his sight because he had seen the Messiah that he encountered the Lord that he was able to go through shipwrecks and hunger and beatings and he kept pressing forward carrying the gospel because he was running with endurance the race that was set before him looking unto Yeshua and he had an encounter with the glory of God these guys provoke me in my life and say God I want to know you like Moses knew you and I want to know you like Paul knew you they, they they stand at the as high points in the scriptures of encounter with the living God with seeing the glory of the Lord amen But both of them spoke and they said similar things to the Lord. Both of them spoke and they said, in regards to Israel, we were willing to be cut off from your presence for eternity. If if you will stay faithful to your people. Let's look quickly to Exodus 32. Exodus chapter 32. Would you turn there in your Bibles? Exodus 32 verse 32. After Moses had been up on the mountain and he saw and he experienced the presence of the Lord, he came down and the people had turned and they had built a golden calf and they had began to worship that while Moses is having his glory encounter. The people are, are in rebellion once again and chasing after an idol. And, and, and he comes back and God tests Moses' heart. He says, shall I wipe them out? Shall I do away with them and start a new plan of faithfulness through your family? Shall I start over again? And Moses pleads with the Lord here in this verse. He says, yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. What he was saying was there, there is understanding that there was a book in heaven that was written that marked the ones that for eternity would be with the Lord. And he was saying, I'm willing for my name to be blotted out. I'm willing to be separated from you for eternity if, it's, if you will have mercy and you will show mercy on your people. Why, is he say, why did he say that? Because he said, I don't want the nations to say, here's the Lord God who brought the Israelites out of Egypt by his mighty power, by signs and wonders, opened up a way through the sea and brought them out into a place of freedom to kill them in the desert. He said, no, I want you to the the nations to see that the God of Israel is a God of faithfulness, that he keeps his covenant, that he will stay true to his word, that he that he will say he will stay the course. He says, I am willing to be separated for eternity. Blot my name out from your book of life. We think about the martyrs. We think about those that gave their life for the gospel. We think about those that have such a passion for the glory of the Lord that they're willing to lay down their physical life. But Moses was willing to be blotted out for eternity, to be separated from God if, It would save his people, not because he was nationalistic, because he had passion for the glory of God to be seen in the nations that say that God is a faithful God. He's a covenant keeping God. Paul, in the same way, in Romans chapter 9, let's turn there quickly. Romans 9, a very similar thing. Verse 1, I tell you the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing a witness in the Holy Spirit, that have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. I have a great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a Jew of Jews. He's saying, my brothers, if it would count for their salvation, I'm willing to be accursed from Messiah. Messiah. Now that word in the Greek is anathema, and it speaks about the sacrificial animal that was to be forever separated. No hope of return. They were marked as as, as out of the way, of no use any longer. He's saying, I will be separated from the very presence of God for eternity. Think about him. He was running the race with faithfulness, enduring the pain, the hardship, all of the challenges that he endured. And he said, even up to this point, I'm willing to, to not have the goal of forever with my Lord. I'm willing not to reach that goal, but to be cut off if it would be for salvation of my brothers. Was he saying it because he was nationalistic? No. He was saying it because he caught a vision of the glory of the Lord, that he's a covenant faithful, a covenant keeping God. And so Paul says, I'm willing to be separated for eternity. We look at the men and women throughout history that their lives are a shining example to us of sacrifice, of willing to lay it down and give their everything for the sake of the gospel. The evangelists of old that cried out with great zeal and with passion for the glory of the Lord and great passion for the lost. We think about John Knox, the Scottish uh, reformer who cried out, and this was his prayer. He said, give me Scotland or I die. He had a passion for souls and he had a passion for the Lord. And he was willing for his natural life to be ended if it was for the salvation of his country. But even John Knox didn't say like Paul, that I be blotted out forever from the presence of the Lord. We think about George Whitfield, the Methodist evangelist. He was used in the Great Awakening and in the Awakening in, in the UK. And he, his prayer to the Lord and his cries, Oh Lord, give me souls or take my soul. He had such a passion for God in his life. He said, I want to see people come into the kingdom. I want to see, I want to serve the purposes of God in my lifetime. I want to bring in a harvest. I want my life. He was willing. I want my life to be spent upon you. George Whitfield died as a young man. He died as a young man. He rode for hours on horseback preparing messages as we go to the next place to preach. And he literally wore his body out. I'm not saying that this is the goal, but this was the level of his passion for the Lord and his passion for souls. His passion for the glory of God was he was willing to give his life and his life was given for the sake of the gospel and of the glory of God. Think about praying hide the missionary statesman to India, the man who who if you read in his biography that he went to India and he hid himself away in a prayer closet for hours and hours during the day he hid himself away and he began to pray for souls in India and he was at the birth of a great missionary movement throughout the whole continent of India and he would he would come out of his closet for just a few hours a day, come out of his house, but he, every single day that he came out in that short time after you'd been and prayer before the Lord. He saw at least four people come to the Lord in his just normal interaction. Out of the inspiration of his life, missionaries were raised up that went throughout the nation of India and he had the same prayers uh, before the Lord. Out of his passion for the glory of God, he said, oh Lord, oh God, give me souls or I die. And he did. He literally, as a young man, after years of praying and interceding for the nation of India, one day his heart erupted in his chest as he was in intercession. His heart turned within his chest and he died in the midst of crying out and travailing for a nation. He had a passion for souls and he had a passion for the glory of of the Lord. His life left a testimony that carries on through till today in that nation. He's an inspiration to us. But these men, as great as they were, Weren't like Moses and Paul who said, blot me out for eternity, separate me completely, if it would be for the salvation of our people. God, give us a passion for your glory, like Moses and like Paul. You see, this whole topic is about seeing the big picture of God choosing, of God's election, of God saying, I'm taking the weakness, I'm taking the least. And I want to use them consistently throughout salvation history to be a picture of my covenant faithfulness. A passion for the glory of God is greater than life itself. Men and women of old have tasted of that. They've touched that. Father, would you raise up that kind of zeal in our hearts? Would you raise up that kind of passion for your glory in your church here in this place? Father, would you raise up that kind of passion in our lives today that we'd say your glory is not only the goal, Lord God, but it is the pursuit of our whole life. Father, we ask that here that you would raise up a witness, Lord God, in this place, in this city, in this region, that there be those that would cry out for your glory, Lord God. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see your big plan, to see the beauty of your design, that you choose the foolish things, Lord, and in your choosing of the people of Israel, and in choosing, Lord God, the sons of Abraham to be priest nation before every other nation, that there's a track record throughout the scriptures and throughout history of the covenant faithfulness of God. Father, imprint it and mark it upon our hearts. Now, this is the thing. When we begin to catch a glimpse, it must change us. It must move us to action. It must do so, we must do something with this revelation that we have. But by and large, within God's people today, there are kind of two extremes where people go concerning Israel. One extreme, they go towards putting Israel on a pedestal. And they talk about the nation of Israel and the political thing and how we can send money to the government of Israel. Let me tell you something: the government of Israel are primarily unbelievers. They're unregenerate. They 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 don't ha- they haven't received the the grace of God yet. By and large, they're making some good decisions and a lot of bad decisions. And just uh, you know, just a. Um, Unconditional support is not the way we're going. That's not what it means to stand with Israel. And then on the other uh, end of the spectrum, we have people that in their response uh, to, the, to, the, to the nation of Israel, God's heart for Israel is the other extreme. They don't put them on a pedestal, but they think lightly of them. They esteem them lightly. Both is sin. Both. Is error for us. We need to find the heart of God as defined by His word concerning Israel. Let me tell you, putting Israel on a pedestal and being all excited, and just, you know, well, I, I'm gonna get my star of David tambourine, and I'm gonna blow my shofar, and I'm gonna dance in a circle, and I and I, you know, I'm gonna keep the Sabbath and the holidays and all those things, and we and we and we look at this stuff as the ultimate spirituality, we're missing the point. And I go so far as to say that if we are looking and we look and we put them on a pedestal and we just see the nation, the unsaved Israel, we just see them and see that nation, we lift it up, it's idolatry. We are looking at a people where we should be lifting our eyes farther farther to the God of Israel. To the covenant keeper. To the faithful one. And so I want to encourage you, if that has been a tendency, lift up your eyes farther tonight. Lift up your eyes to see him in his glory, in his power, in his goodness, in his might. That he's been faithful through the ages. That he's watched over a people in their in their unbelief, in their rebellion, in their stiff-neckedness. That, they, that he has been consistent throughout history to look out for his word and 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 to stay true to every promise that he's given. We don't want to have a romantic lens that we look through at, at Israel. But rather we need to see with eyes of love the God of Israel. On the other end of the spectrum, we have lightly esteeming her. You hear these kind of statements like, It's just a nation amongst every other nation in the earth. They need Jesus like every other nation. I've heard that so many times. Yes, it's true. They do need Jesus, but he chose them to be a sign. He chose them to be a priestly nation. That we want to, as a covenant people, as a people with a culture of honor, we want to honor what God honors. That we want to honor his covenant and and the the words that he speaks and his promises. And in regards to them, that we stay away from lightly esteeming. That we stay away from saying, they're not relevant. What's the big deal? Maybe you've asked those questions in your heart. Maybe you've made those kind of, of statements you've seen. You've said, you know, oh, I wanna, I've seen the extreme of putting Israel on a pedestal. And so, say, ah, what's the big deal? They're equally wrong. We need to find ourselves centered on the word of God. What does the Bible say about God's interaction with a people, with a nation? Concerning this lightly esteeming, I just want to mention something from Genesis 12. This passage is so familiar about God's promise to Abraham, the father of our faith. He said, I will bless those who bless you and those that lightly esteem you, those that dishonor you, I will curse. Most of our translations say, and I will curse those who curse you. But the word there actually is that you make light of them. You don't treat them with value. Those come under a curse. Because I design through them all the families of the earth to be a blessing. Lord, we want to value what you value. We want to honor what you honor. We don't want to ignore your choosing by just saying that Israel is one of the, of the nations. Lord, we want to recognize that you made her as firstborn amongst the nations. Lord, that you chose her in her weakness to show your glory and to show your strength. Father God, we want to come in line with your order and with your design. Sometimes we ask and we say, well, what about all of God's judgments against Israel, against the people? We read that the prophets railing against the people, calling them to repentance over and over again. And we read those passages. How does that line up with God's plan and with his covenant faithfulness? And in Zechariah, it speaks about the nations that God used to to bring judgment against Israel so they might turn back to them. He says, but you went too far. I used you to be an instrument of judgment upon the nation, but you went too far. And then God speaks there very affectionately, says, They're the apple of my eye. Zechariah chapter 2. The apple of the eye has so many different imagery with it. One is that it's just this sensitive area. Of our eye. You know you get anything in your eye. And it begins to water up. If something comes moving here in our peripheral vision. We close our eyes. to Protect our eyes. The apple of our eye is saying. That this is the most precious. Part of me. If you touch them. It's like touching the apple of my eye. And when we esteem Israel lightly. It's like pointing a finger. Poking a finger in the eye of God. They're the apple of my eye. I've set my love upon them. The other scriptures that he speaks about in the Psalms concerning the apple of his eye and Israel being the apple of his eye, it speaks about protection, about nurture and about care. Like in the shadow's wings, I have hid you. I've protected you. That's how we're to think. That's God's thoughts towards his people. Let's move from the fringe to the center of the word of God that's steady and true. That he chose a people to be honored, not because of them, but because of his covenant faithfulness. Would you stand to your feet? Father, we ask, Lord, for greater passion for your glory. Father, we ask, that you would give us humility of heart to see that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts, Lord God. That your design is beautiful and it's intricate, Lord God. And that you've been working a plan from the beginning of history and you chose a people to work your plan through that would be a light to the nations, that would be a priest to all other nations. And Father, as we look at the story of salvation history, Lord God, concerning your dealings with the sons of Abraham, and dealings with the people of Israel, we pray, Lord God, that we would not move to the extreme of idolatry or putting them on a pedestal. We would not move to the other extreme of dis- treating them lightly, of esteeming them lightly, of dishonoring them, Lord. But as, as we look to you right there in the center, that you are a faithful covenant-keeping God, that our hearts would be, in, uh, uh, p- that we would become a people of covenant, that we would become a people of honor, Lord God, and that we would hold them and we'd see them as the apple of your eye, Lord God. But beyond that, that we would look to you, the God of Israel, the faithful one. The God of glory. The God of the whole earth, Father. And we thank you that through this nation, you chose to bring your glory to every nation on the earth. That through this people, your design and your desire, Lord, as we approach the end of days, Lord God, will be that your glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now I ask, Lord, that you would tenderize our hearts. That you bring revelation. And where we have veered or or leaned in a certain direction. That you would bring us to the center of your heart. And that our eyes would be lifted to you. To see your glory. To see your power. To see your majesty, Father. We worship you. And Father, I pray that tonight, as we go, there would be hope in our hearts. That we would catch a fresh glimpse of your covenant faithfulness. And as you've been faithful to the people of Israel, there would be confidence in our hearts that you'll be faithful to us, that you will keep every word that you have promised, Lord God. We hold on to that. We hold on to that. We hold fast to that with confidence that you are a covenant keeper, Lord God, that you stay true to your word. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen.